When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of For Real is sponsored by Borrowed. If you're looking for another great podcast for book nerds, check out Borrowed from the Brooklyn Public Library. It's a narrative podcast about superhero librarians, Brooklyn neighborhood stories, and what it means to be a free, democratic space in a changing world. Just search for Borrowed in your podcast app of choice or on the web at bklynlibrary.org slash podcasts. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a book riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukra, and fellow writer Alice Burton. We're recording this week's episode on Saturday, October 10th. Hello, Alice. How are you today? Um, good. The second you said Saturday, October 10th, I realized that today is normally the day of, or maybe it's tomorrow, of what would be the Chicago Marathon. Which oh. runs right by our apartment. So, yes. Oh, last year, um, Tyler from The Bachelor ran directly into no. my now wife uh, <gasps> as he was coming out of a porta potty. He so, ran into her? Yeah, he was like trying to run back into the like race. <laughs> so, we'd like, the porta potties were on our street. And so he like <laughs> came out of one as we were. There was a way you could track their numbers, you know? Like if you know uh-huh. someone's number. So, yeah, Michelle yeah. was like, Tyler! gonna be running by really soon so we like ran out of the house and like went to watch and then as we were going towards the race she got bumped and then she started frantically pointing at me and was like tyler stopped to use the bathroom i'm so delighted by that story it was so exciting what a moment what a moment. But anyway, the, the marathon's not happening this year, of course, and uh, no. it's very sad. I'm sorry for all the runners who, you know, I'm sure it means a lot to. Yeah, I, um, I'm i not a runner, but I have a friend who's done a couple of marathons, and so I've ended up going to cheer for her at them. And there's, like, I would never want to do that, but there's something very inspiring and, like, heartwarming when you see people, like, doing it and then finishing the race and, like, what an achievement that is. That I always get very like verklempt and teary eyed when I stand at the finish line watching people do it because I'm so impressed by them. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. how are how are you? What's going on? Well, you know, it's been a it's been a long time since we chatted via the podcast. It's uh, yeah, because we recorded the last one so early, and now we're recording this one a little bit later than normal, which is kind of funny. Um, so in between, you got married. I did. And <laughs> I took PTO. I took some vacation from my day job, uh, and I. I did actually not read very much while I was on vacation. I only finished two books while I was technically on vacation um, for like a whole week, which I was a little, I don't know. I was, I was surprised by that, but one of them was really, they were both really great, but the nonfiction one I finished that was really great was the education of idealists by Samantha power, which I have talked about on the podcast several times before and and not actually read until right now. Um, And it's a memoir by uh, president Obama's former, um, one of his former ambassadors to the United Nations. And she was, before she became an ambassador, she worked in the Obama administration. She was an activist and a journalist um, trying to work uh, preventing and 
uh, genocides across the world. Uh, and it was a, it was a fascinating book. I really, I really liked it. So, um, yeah, that's what I've been up to. That's pretty good. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. think I finished reading anything partially because of the wedding, maybe mostly because of the wedding that took up a lot mm-hmm. of brain mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I got married and we went to Michigan for a little bit after we got like an Airbnb, um, Michigan felt very safe thanks to the excellent governor there, <laughs> Gretchen Whitmer, who um very happy is safe. And uh yeah, she was it was it was a very it was a lovely day and we had like beautiful weather and I'm married now. And I just I don't know, Michelle is great and people say that it feels different to be married, and that is true. I like wasn't positive about it, but it's just it's just a little bit it's just a little bit different of a feeling. Yeah, so I'm just, I'm so excited for you. It was a lovely wedding, and I'm so thrilled for you and Michelle. It's delightful. I'm so glad that you were able to, like, be there watching. Yes, yes. Zoom weddings are strange, but also kind of fun in in a weird way. (laughs) Yes, they are. Um, So with that, let's talk about something else delightful. It is our first sponsor, uh, Book Riot's mystery thriller podcast, Red or Dead. It's spooky season, readers, and get your thrills with Red or Dead, Book Riot's bi-weekly mystery fiction podcast dedicated to the worlds of mystery and thriller literature. I love that genre. So it is very exciting to have a podcast that recommends different reads in that uh, specific area. Join hosts and genre experts Rincy and Katie as they catch up on mystery and thriller news, chat about new releases, and recommend your next mystery and thriller reads, including your favorite subgenres like true crime, cozies, procedurals, and all things Halloween appropriate. Get Red or Dead, that's R-E-A-D or Dead, on your podcatcher of choice. That's awesome. I'm so glad they're sponsoring. I've been on like a mystery kick this year. I think I don't, there's something satisfying about them because like they get resolved and like bad people go to jail most of the time. And you're like, thank you for the world working the way it's supposed to most of the time. Anyway, um, with that, we will shift gears into our first segment, which is uh, nonfiction in the news. Uh, So we've got a couple of prize award or prize finalist lists to talk about this week. Yes. Okay. Number one is the, oh, I just like took away the name of it. It is the Frederick Douglass Book Prize finalists for 2020. Um, This is part of the Gilder Lerman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition uh, at the Macmillan Center. So this is the 22nd year they're having the Frederick Douglass Prize. And the finalists are Kelly Carter Jackson for Force and Freedom, Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Sleep, sorry, and the Politics of Violence, Keila Greenberg for A Black Jurist in a Slave Society, Antonio Pereira Rebusas and the Trials of Brazilian Citizenship. Um, and then Stephanie E. Rogers Jones for They Were Her Property, White Women as Slave Owners in the American South. I have this one and it's really good. And Sophie White for Voices of the Enslaved, Love, Labor, and Longing in French Louisiana. Um, this is going to be announced, like the winner is going to be announced later this fall. The award's going to be presented in February 2021. And it's just, I'm really psyched that we can talk about these finalists on the podcast. Check out those books. Yeah, they all sound really interesting. Uh, and then the other big book prize news that came out in the last couple of weeks, or last week probably, uh, is the National Book Award finalists were finally uh, announced. And so um, 
I'm going to read the list of the nonfiction ones and then we can chat about them a little bit because we were both uh, interested in this list because it's a lot of books we're not familiar with. So uh, the nonfiction finalists for this year's National Book Award are The Undocumented Americans by Carla Cornero Villasignano, The Dead Are Arising, The Life of Malcolm X by Les Payne and Tamara Payne, Unworthy Republic, The Dispossession of Native Americans and the Road to Indian Territory by Claudio Sant, My Autobiography of Carson McCullers by Jen Chaplin, and How to Make a Slave and Other Essays by Gerald Walker. Um, and the, uh, the only book on this list that I had heard of before it was announced was The Undocumented Americans. And I feel like you also had similar reaction to it. Yeah, I have heard of two of them because I was recently updating my nonfiction release spreadsheet. And one of them I had, I had not heard of because it hasn't come out yet. But it's How to Make a Slave and Other Essays by Gerald Walker. Um, as far as I could tell, it hasn't come out yet, which I was like, wow, and it's nominated. <laughs> That's interesting. Mm -hmm. But it's out really soon, and it looks really good. Um, I'd also heard of uh, my autobiography of Carson McCullers, but I have not read it, so I don't think we highlighted it on this podcast. No, I don't think we've talked about any of these, which I actually think is awesome uh, that they're pulling out nonfiction that maybe hasn't gotten quite as much buzz this year. Um, yep. I feel like... I usually really like the National Book Award list. Like, it's just uh, there's a lot of variety, and they often will have at least a few books that I'm not familiar with. So um, I'm excited about this list. I think it'll be really interesting. So um, we are linking to a Washington Post article by Ron Charles uh, to have all of the finalists in fiction, uh, poetry, drama, that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, that's going to be in the show notes. So if you want to yes. check those out more specifically, uh, that'll yes. be there. And the ceremony where the winner will be announced is going to be an online event on November 18th. So we'll know the winner in just a little over a month. So that will be exciting. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, so with that, we will move into uh, this week's new nonfiction, which is books that are out recently or coming out soon that we are excited to read and talk about. Um, so my first pick for new nonfiction is What Were We Thinking? A Brief Intellectual History of the Trump Era by Carlos Lozada. And so uh, Carlos Lozada is the nonfiction book critic for the Washington Post. And I think the headline that you're going to see about this book that I saw about this book in a bunch of places was a guy reads 150 Trump books and then tells you about them which is sort of true and also <laughs> sort of a simplification of what he's actually doing. So we all know that there have been like a bajillion books that came out that are about the Trump administration explicitly or about issues that the Trump administration has made uh, talking points like uh, immigration and that sort of thing. And so because he's the nonfiction book credit for the Washington Post, Carlos Lozada has had to read a lot of those over the last four to five years. And so this book takes all of the books that he has read and explores the different way, the themes and ways of thinking about Trump and this period in history that have come out through these books, right? Like we've seen a lot of books kind of about similar topics. And so he takes those topics and looks at a bunch of books on that topic and kind of tells you which ones he thinks are good and which ones are not. And what all of those books show you about the way people are thinking about these issues and this administration in particular. So their first chapter is about white working class people in the heartland. And so it looks at how, um, how they are portrayed in various books that have come out, everything from Hillbilly Elegy to Heartland by Sarah Smarsh, um, 
or Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance and Heartland by Sarah Marsh. Um, there's a funny part in that chapter about how the same guy from, I think, Pennsylvania shows up in two different books about the white working class people, about white working class people, but how his reasons for supporting Trump are attributed to two completely different causes, depending on the angle that the authors are taking, um, which is kind of funny. Um there's another chapter about Republican responses to Trump. So he talks about books from people who he calls sycophants, people who are the never Trumpers, and then people who are intellectuals, in air quotes, trying to justify <laughs> Trump administration policies. Um, there's one chapter on immigration. And so all of these different issues, he's looking at all the books that have come out about it. Um, I... I liked this book a lot. Um, he is very snarky in places. And so I laughed in all of those really snarky um, comments that he was making because I think he has a really funny sense of humor. Although it's very um, kind of quiet, I guess. And it reminded me of like when you're at a party and you have that quiet friend who's really funny, but they're really good. They're not loud about it. Like they just kind of get those digs in while other people are having conversations. And then they'll have like a one-liner where you're like, ah, that was a good one. I really liked that. Um that's what it reminded me of. And there are lots of good like word nerd jokes in this book too. So um, I, I like it because it's not a book about Trump explicitly. It's about how we're thinking about this whole era in American history. And I think that that's an, a, a more, more thoughtful approach and a, a, an approach that I find more compelling. And so, uh, and I also liked that it gave me some ideas about which books I may actually want to read versus ones that probably are not worth the time. So if you're interested in that kind of approach to politics right now, uh, I think this is a good pick. What Were We Thinking? A Brief Intellectual History of the Trump Era by Carlos Lozada. That was a great way of pitching it with like the friend at a party thing because that mm -hmm. immediately made me be like, oh yeah, that person. That I love that person. Mm -hmm. um, no, I, I've mostly avoided books about the, the current yeah. presidential administration and about, um, I mean, in kind of in a similar vein, COVID, because I'm like, we're in the middle of it. I feel like it's too soon to analyze. But um, the, this angle sounds really good. And yeah. like something I will pick up. It's a good uh, book survey. Oh, I love a book survey. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's the same. I took, okay, quick sidebar. I took a class in college on Russian and Eastern European studies, which mainly consisted of a lot of professors from across the university in that area, kind of, or related areas, coming in and talking mm -hmm. to us, which was great because then you'd be like, I liked that professor. I'm going to take their class. So similarly, you yes. need to figure out what books you want to read. I'm just saying. It's all linked. Okay. <laughs> My uh, my pick is White Reconstruction, Domestic Warfare, and the Logics of Genocide by Dylan Rodriguez. There are some heavy books coming out uh, this next week, and this one I'm really glad was written. So basically, this takes the idea that, um, you know how during the Obama administration and kind of like in the mid-2000s, we were like, we solved racism. It's all done. <laughs> Glad that that's all in the past. Okay. So with White Reconstruction, this book, he basically says that um, post the Civil Rights um, Act and like post the 1960s when like all of this progress had been made, um, he defines that until like now, or I guess we're still in the middle of it, as a period of white reconstruction. Um, and so... The, that's defined as like the struggle to reassemble the um, ascendancy of like of being white and how it uh, toxifies what when they were. OK, 
sorry, I'm like partially, he's very academic. And I'm like, how do I restate what he is saying in a way that is more like accessible? And I think it's essentially that all of this progress had been made. And then in the past 60 years, um, what had been done sometimes surreptitiously, sometimes pretty overtly, depending on the power held by um, the people in government uh, to keep white people in power basically, which also relates to, you know, like the the gutting of the Voting Rights Act from the 1960s, which um, happened in the early 2010s. So this is work that has been like, at first it was slowly happening. I feel like it has more overtly been happening recently, especially with, um, you know, like even like executive orders given by our president, basically saying that you can't say that (laughs) there is systemic racism exists. Um, And So having someone who was very academically looking at this period and looking at like archival, testimonial, visual and like activist texts from um, the Freedmen's Bureau, there was a a join LAPD hiring campaign, um, the Pelican Bay prison strike, all of this talks about how cultural politics and the statecraft of both white liberalism and the reaction, it illustrates how um, anti-black and this racial colonial domestic war survives periods of reform and is um, that sort of like create these conditions of dominance on what like so it it's just I feel like it's a good wake up call to uh, at a time when we are we being like I'm just going to name you and me Kim as like white liberals. Mm-hmm. Um, being more, I would say, ready to see the ways in which we are complicit in in these sort of systems. So I think it's a really well-timed book. And uh, again, that is White Reconstruction, Domestic Warfare, and the Logics of Genocide by Dylan Rodriguez. Sounds very intense, but also very interesting. So I'm glad you talked about it. It's a good um, sum up. Yeah. So I have another sort of political, I guess we're into political books this week for some reason. Um, the election is so soon. That's <laughs> true. It's true. That's, that's where we are. Um, so my second pick is uh, She Come By It Natural, Dolly Parton and the Women Who Lived Her Songs by Sarah Smarsh. Um, this book comes out October 13th from Scribner. Uh, and so I was interested in this one because Sarah Smarsh, the author, uh, wrote Heartland, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth, from uh, which came out in 2018. And this is a memoir I really loved about her uh, experience growing up as a woman uh, in the working poor in Kansas. Uh, and so when I saw that she had a book coming out about Dolly Parton, I thought this is a really interesting person to be writing about Dolly Parton, and I'm 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 in for it. So uh, the the book came about because uh, in 2016. She was awarded a fellowship from No Depression Magazine to do a year-long writing project exploring Dolly Parton's life, impact, and legacy. And so the result of that fellowship was a four-part series that was published in the magazine throughout 2017, I think like once a quarter. Uh, And so this book collects those articles together with some minor edits to uh, be a book talking about Dolly Parton and her legacy. So um, she writes in the introduction how she didn't really make any major edits to the essays because she wants the book to be kind of a snapshot in time. And so the book, the writing of the book started just before the Women's March in 2017 and finished just before the Me Too era or the Me Too movement became mainstream. And so the book has this, um, uses Dolly Parton to look at kind of this 
moment in American history around 2017. And so um, the reason that Sarah Marshall wanted to write about Dolly Parton is she writes that Dolly's music and life contained what I wanted to say about class, gender, and my female forebears. That country music by women was the formative feminist text of my life. And so she writes about Dolly Parton and her, her biography, but also her kind of ongoing cultural impact um, she writes about how Dolly Parton was part of her own upbringing in poverty in Kansas and how Dolly Parton and other female country artists like her really helped give voice to the the experiences of those women. And so she is looking at the social progress contributions that women like Dolly Parton have helped make, um, even those like Dolly, who won't use the term feminism to describe who they are, what they do. Uh, and it's just, it's so interesting because in just so many ways, because it is this like lens to look at a pretty impactful year in history, but it also kind of backs up and opens out to look at different issues for rural white women in particular, but um, women and how those, um, how their their experiences are reflected in Dolly Parton and her music, what Dolly has meant to them. And I just, I really like it. It's so interesting. And I'm, I'm not a huge country music listener just personally, but I still have found it very interesting. And I think Dolly Parton is such a big presence that learning more about her and how she has impacted people is uh, definitely worth it. So she come by at natural Dolly Parton and the women who lived her songs by Sarah Smarsh. Gosh, that sounds great. It's great. Um, it's great. I requested this galley. I'm really excited to to look into it because um who doesn't love Dolly Parton, American sure. hero. Um okay. My next pick is The Ghost Road Anishinaabe Responses to Indian Hating by Matthew L M Fletcher. Um Fletcher is a member of the Grand Traverse Band. He is a professor of law at Michigan State University um college of law and the director of the indigenous law and policy center so in this book he is mainly focusing on um well you can guess what the whole anishinaabe responses to indian hating he's setting it up as american history uh law and policy have been molded by this um pretty consistent from i would say even before the country was started um like tradition of indian hating so this includes um proportional representation restrictions on the right to bear arms the breakup of tribal property rights the destruction of indian culture and family um even i was just on mackinac island and they had like a, an indian boarding school there and that was, you know, that's like one of these things that he's talking about. And it's just, um, you can find it pretty much across the United States. Um, there's uh, attacks on tribal governance and people are, are still happening. So uh, along with all of this sort of history, each chapter has a traditional Anishinaabe story or a teaching to um, kind of give context to everything, which I, I really love as like a, a balance. And it the book as a whole kind of reveals these fault lines of U.S. federal and tribal relations while also highlighting um, Native American people's cultural persistence and their political innovation and, like, what has been going on for, uh, like, 250 years, approximately, which is um, in the history of our nation, the entire time, <laughs> like, beyond. <laughs> So, again, that is uh, The Ghost Road, Anishinaabe Responses to Indian Hating by Matthew L. M. Fletcher. 
That is another intense but fascinating sounding book. Excellent, excellent pick. Um, and then I have just two other quick mentions that are books that were not really on my radar until just recently that I think would be interested to people on the podcast, but that I haven't had a chance to really read or explore yet. Uh, and so the first one is White Tears, Brown Scars, How White Feminism Betrays Women of Color by Ruby Hamid. Uh, and this is a book about how, uh, this is a book of history and cultural criticism that reveals how white feminism has been used as a weapon of white supremacy and patriarchy deployed against black and indigenous women and women of color, which seems like an important and useful read right now. Uh, and then the other one was one where like the title just surprised me and I thought this sounds fun. Uh, and it's called Lincoln's Lie, A True Civil War Caper Through Fake News, Wall Street and the White House by Elizabeth Mitchell. And this is a thrilling dive into a, a part, part of Lincoln's history. And it looks at a mysterious 1864 newspaper article and reveals how Lincoln manipulated the media during the Civil War, shining new light on today's issues of fake news and presidential conflict with the press. Uh, and I just, I really like the subtitle of that one. And I thought that sounds fun. Uh, you know, that is a very that is a very fun subtitle. Um, White Tears, Brown Scars is is published by Catapult, which uh, mm. I would just encourage people to to check out in general. Catapult's been publishing some great stuff, and they are very new um, to the publishing of books. Oh, excellent. Excellent addition. Thank you. All right. And so our second sponsor for this week's episode is TBR, Book Riot subscription service offering reading recommendations personalized to your reading life. Want great new nonfiction books to read, but overwhelmed by all the publishing buzz? Let us help. Tell TBR about your reading likes and dislikes, what you're looking for, and then sit back while your bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. TBR offers plans to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email, so there's an option for every budget. TBR is produced in partnership with Print, a bookstore in Portland, Maine, so you can treat your shelf and support an indie too. TBR is also available as a gift. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. That's mytbr.co. All right. So this week's theme is, it's kind of a sad one, I guess. I don't know. Um, the day that we recorded our last episode, we found out that uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away after a many years long fight with pancreatic cancer. And so we decided we wanted to dedicate this episode to Justice Ginsburg and women of the Supreme Court with books by and about those topics. So I don't know, do you have anything to add before we hop into our recommendations, Alice? Um, <laughs> so nothing that won't result in me crying. So I think we're good. Okay. All right. So this is, uh, I don't know, just like crushing news. And so I'm I'm sad that we're like doing this because we lost Justice Ginsburg, but I am excited to talk a little bit more about her. So uh, my first pick for this segment is uh, My Own Words by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And uh, so this is a 2018 collection of her writings uh, that she put together uh, in conjunction with two of her authorized biographers, Mary Hartnett and Wendy Williams. So the collection starts with like some pieces she wrote when she was in high school um, and then goes through her best opinions and dissents while she served on the Supreme Court and just has a bunch of stuff in the middle. It has texts from speeches. It has her um, acceptance speech when she was nominated to the Supreme Court. Uh, it has writing about female trailblazers like Sandra Day O'Connor and Gloria Steinem. Um, she has reflections on women and the law, both through her um, career and just some of her own experience 
experiences, um, stories about her time as a justice on the Supreme Court, uh, as well as more personal things. Like there's essays about being Jewish. Um, there's some about her friendship with Justice Antonin Scalia. Um, there's one that's called Supreme Court Wives Stories, which I haven't gotten to read yet, but sounds really fascinating. Um, so like I said, the essays were selected by Ginsburg. She looked kind of at her work and picked some that were her favorites and, and most impactful. And she worked with her biographers to do that. Um, what's nice about the way that the book is structured is that um, Mary Hartnett, Wendy Williams introduce each of the selections and give some context for each of the pieces. And they also introduce each of the big sections to try and give you kind of the scope and how these different pieces fit into Ginsburg's life and her work and her legacy. And so I really appreciate that context because it gives the words, I think, a little more weight than just by themselves if you understand when they came out and what they say, how the things she did before and after may have impacted what she wrote or said at the time. Uh, it is funny. It is smart. There's some really interesting behind the scenes stuff that I like. Um, I haven't, I'm not reading this one straight through. I've been kind of picking and choosing stuff that seems interesting on a given day. And it's just, um, it's really lovely. It's a very good book. So um, if you are just want to read more from Justice Ginsburg just in her own words, uh, you can pick up My Own Words by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I've been meaning to to sort of get that one, but a lot of my stuff has been coming from the library. And as we mm -hmm. were saying right before the podcast, stuff uh, about Ruth Bader Ginsburg at the library is uh, mostly checked out right now. Yep. Um, so my first pick is Sisters-in-Law. How Sandra Day O'Connor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg Went to the Supreme Court and Changed the World by Linda Hirschman. So this is if you're kind of interested more in the history of women on the Supreme Court, um, particularly uh, the first two. So Sandra Day O'Connor was uh, nominated by Reagan in 1981 and became the first woman uh, justice on the Supreme Court. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was nominated by Clinton in 1993 and um so they were on the court together uh i think until about 2005 i could be wrong about that date but you know like uh, over a decade and this biography or dual biography is very kind of like if you want to I guess, combine your learning about them because it's very like, here's her biography, here's her biography, and like woven in like, like, uh, together in each chapter. And then also talking about, you know, like how they were able to support each other as being the the only two women at the time on the court. Um, there are a lot of, um, sort of juxtaposed titles. So like the chapter titles are like Country Girl, City Kid, and Goldwater Girl, and Card Carrying Member of the ACLU. And just like, you know, <laughs> um, highlighting how they were like, Sandra Day O'Connor definitely was more conservative. She still, though, was um, uh, the, the swing vote in a lot of key decisions. Um, and was seen as more of like a middle of the road person on the court. And it seems like a more... I'm trying to think from what I've read about how I would describe it. It's more kind of like a solid biography. Like if you're just like, I want like a calm, steady, none of this pop culture malarkey um, <laughs> kind of biography of these women, then I would recommend this. So again, that is Sisters in Law, How Sandra Day O'Connor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg Went to the Supreme Court and Changed the World by Linda Hirschman. That's nice. I think it is sometimes nice to just like have something that just gives you not just the facts, but uh, sort of a 
a calming presence. Even keel kind of presentation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Um, So my next pick is another one that's not about Ruth Bader Ginsburg specifically, but it's about women on the Supreme Court more generally. And uh, that is My Beloved World by Sonia Sotomayor, which is her 2013 memoir. So uh, when Sonia Sotomayor was appointed to the Supreme Court, she was the first uh, Hispanic woman and first Hispanic person and third woman who was ever appointed to the Supreme Court, which seems just just bananas that, that that took so long for that to happen. But that, I feel like we say that a lot about things when they say they were the first to do X, Y, or Z, that it's crazy. It took this long. So, mm-hmm. um, But My Beloved World is a little bit different than the previous books we talked about because it is much more a personal memoir. And actually, she ends the book uh, when she is appointed to the federal district court when she turns 40. So there's nothing in the book about her time as a judge or a Supreme Court justice. But I actually really liked that approach because it gives her the opportunity to be more personal. And I think her personal story is really interesting and inspirational. So um, she begins with her life growing up in a Bronx housing project and then again goes to when she was appointed to the federal bench uh, at 40. So um, it's a really open and informal memoir um, by a sitting member of the Supreme Court, which I think makes it different and interesting and part of the reason to highlight it. So um, she writes a lot about her childhood, her experiences in school, and then her early career as part of the New York County District Attorney's Office uh, and her time as in private practice before she became a judge. So part of what is fascinating about her story is that she was diagnosed with juvenile diabetes when she was very young. I think she was seven. And she had to learn how to manage this uh, chronic illness by herself because um, Um, Her home life at the time was not particularly stable. Her father was an alcoholic and her mother was a nurse who was supporting the family and so was really busy and overburdened. And so the book opens with this very moving story about when she was diagnosed with diabetes, how her extended family responded, which was to think that this was going to be a really debilitating experience. illness for her and how she decided that she, in order to be independent and um, take care of herself, she needed to learn to give herself her own insulin shots. And so she very vividly describes the first time she did it where she worked, you know, her mother kind of walked her through it where she had to put the, she had to disinfect the needle by putting it in a pot of boiling water and then put the insulin in it and make sure there were no bubbles and then inject it into it. And it just was, it's um, just like an incredibly vivid story that really, um, I thought it was really moving. So um, she goes on, her her father died when she was nine years old. And so she writes about that. Uh, she writes about how she decided she wanted to become a lawyer and how a lot of the inspiration for that and a lot of her career kind of inspiration came from television characters. They were role models for her. And so then she goes into how mentors influenced her, how her failed marriage influenced her, and how her extended network of friends and family have shaped her life. Um, it's a very personal story. And so it's not... And so, again, because it's a personal story, it's not about her time as a judge, but it's still, I think, a fascinating look at someone whose biography is so different from all of the other people who have previously served on the Supreme Court and how you can kind of look and see how that may have affected how she um, how she uh, r- rules or how she how she makes decisions in that that position. Um, I was listening to the audiobook. So Sotomayor reads or Sotomayor reads the introduction and is great, but most of the audiobook is read by Rita Moreno, which is a real delight. Um, she's so great. Um, and I, I just really liked it. So it's a, it's a good, good, solid memoir and, uh, a lot, a lot of interesting stuff to pick up there. So My Beloved World by Sonia Sotomayor. I remember when that was coming out and she was like doing the book tour and you weren't Mm -hmm. allowed to ask her questions about like 
her time as a justice. Like, you had to, like, basically just ask questions related to the book. So I thought that was interesting. Which, I guess if I were a justice of the Supreme Court, which I can't even... Uh, can't even imagine, really. But I, I would probably be like, oh, we can't really talk about that. Because it seems like the, they're so private. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, it's such a mystery. Yeah, yeah. And she she writes this. She has an introduction to the book where she, you can tell that she's, it's almost like she's writing an opinion or justification for why she decided to do the book that way. And she talks about how she really does want it to be a personal story and that it, the, that is what she feels comfortable sharing and that is why she's done it. And because it's a memoir, it's reliant on memory and it's not a historical thing. And she's very like, so it may not be entirely, she never says it may not be entirely factual, but she's sort of like kind of talking about that and how biography is one thing and memoir is another thing. And this is a memoir. And so I just think it's an interesting approach because I don't know that, I can't say this for sure, but I don't know that other Supreme Court justices have have done the same thing. And so it's an interesting piece from that perspective, too, like you said, really trying to stay away from her time as a judge and focus on her inspirational younger life, which I think is really cool. Well, and it's so good to like, you know, for someone who is in such an exalted position um, to like learn what their path was. Like if she talks Mm -hmm. about up to the point, basically right before she became well when she was like nearing the end of like the supreme court path like then you learn how she made it happen which gosh it's just very impressive for most of people um okay so my last pick is notorious rbg like we can't talk about this book like we gotta do um (laughs) the life and times of ruth bader ginsburg by irene carmen and shauna knizhnik um, I avoided this book for a long time because I thought it was, as previously stated, pop culture malarkey, but I would like to retract that opinion um, now that I have read it. So Notorious RBG is based on a Tumblr created by Shauna Knishnook, and um, the name Notorious RBG was actually coined by a classmate of hers at NYU named Ankur Mantania, who was cited in the book. But so she like heard this and she was like, oh, cool. And this it came about because uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg for I, I would say like the first 10 years on the bench was like pretty quiet mm-hmm. and um, wasn't really making too much of a, a ruckus. And then when the uh, I think three ju- justices were named under George W. Bush and the court started becoming uh, much more conservative and I think she got a little bit um, felt it incumbent upon her to to make more of a statement uh, against some of the opinions being read at the time. So on June 25th, 2013, that is when the Voting Rights Act was gutted by the court, which was basically like saying that racism wasn't a thing anymore. And um, she started delivering like well, it was in the middle of she was giving a series of dissents. This was one of her most stirring and kind of speaking to the people who very much disagreed with this opinion from the Supreme Court. So Notorious RBG was born. The book is a combination of art uh, that's done like of RBG and um, what's more sort of like, I would say like um, 
like street art and pop mm-hmm. art and less sort of formalized representations. And um, also, though, a biography of her and one that I find really accessible, really interesting and cites, you know, like uh, it has like images of her documents that she worked on when she was um, in law school and like notes that she wrote to her husband, Marty, like on documents being like, could this case apply to this? And it's so cute. Um mm-hmm. I just really, really like it as an RBG book, especially, again, one that is very, like, easy to get through. And um, I thought it was going to basically be, like, um, almost too irreverent of, you know, her life and everything. And I, it absolutely does not read that way. So um, that that worry was allayed. But I would, I would recommend it. If you're looking for something less um, formal but still informative, it's really good. And again, so many good images. So that is Notorious RBG by Irene Carmen and Shauna Knizhnuk. Yeah, I read that one back in 2016 and I really liked it. Um, I appreciate, like you said, that it's got a lot of the pop culture stuff and it's got kind of her as a fiery person, but it also really gets at how her legal career before the Supreme Court was really about like incremental change and how she had this very specific and focused strategy for making some of these big changes towards gender equality. Um, and the book did a good job of like laying that out. And um, I think there's a lot to admire there too in understanding how she did that and all my favorite fact i'm looking at the review i wrote back in 2016 is that she wrote a book about civil procedure in sweden um which like that's so weird and i just love it um (laughs) did you read the the kagan quote where she was like that's why we always go to her whenever we have questions of procedure in sweden (laughs) (laughs) so funny that's not Um, a direct quote she said it funnier but yes yeah, it's a, it's a really good book, especially if you just want kind of a like big picture look and to understand both her strategy as a lawyer and then like how she how her views evolved while she was on the bench. I think this is a great one. So yeah, I'm glad you talked about it. Yay. All right. So with that, we will close out the podcast as we normally do by talking about the books that we are reading right now. Uh, and we actually are both reading the same book at the moment, which is fiction, which is uh, I guess not surprising because we both read fiction, but it's funny we're both reading the same one. And that is The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab. Uh, do you want to do you want to give it a quick summary? I think you can. Pro- OK, so basically there is this woman who has been living since uh, the 1700s, at least mm-hmm. since the 1700s. And when anyone she meets, they forget her name and they forget who she is. Like she will have like a passionate love affair with a gentleman. And then the next morning he does not know who she is. Um, it's not funny. It's very sad. So uh, and then I believe the whole twist is one day someone remembers her. Is that I haven't gotten mm-hmm. that far yet. Yeah, I haven't gotten that far yet either. But yes, the premise is that for like 300 years, no one ever remembers her. And then all of a sudden, one day someone does and her life changes. Uh, and I I love V.E. Schwab. She is such a great writer as of like fantasy um, fantasy books that I, I'm so excited for this one. Um, I liked her Shades of Magic trilogy. I read that a couple of years ago, I want to say now. And I've just been like waiting for something else to scratch that itch. And I hope that this is it. Did you read Vicious? I did, and I, it was too dark for me. I started it, and then it got returned to the library. Um, this yeah. I just finished Darker Shades of Magic, and the third one was my absolute favorite. I loved it so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I tried Vicious, which is there's it's a duology, Vicious and Vengeful, uh, and it was just too, it was too dark for me. So I'm hoping that this one is not quite so 
mean-ish. I don't, I don't, I'm, it's hard to describe, but something about it, I think if I wasn't reading it in 2020, it would have been fine. But this year yep. it was just like too much. So I think that's understandable. <laughs> so I'm hoping that this one is not lighter exactly, but just a little bit more, more shades of magic-y. So anyway. I think we'll, it we'll... seems like that thus far. It seems like a little yeah. bit of a lighter read. Yeah, I hope so. Watch that be like like people who finished it already are like laughing at us. They're like, you think it's a lighter read? Um, okay, no, we're excited. So, in conclusion, you can find us on social media. Uh, message us about your opinions about nonfiction at it's Alice time and at Kim the Dork. And our amazing audio editing for this episode was done by Dan Baker. Thank you, Dan. And if you feel so inclined, we would love it if you take a minute to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. That helps people find us more easily. And then you can subscribe so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. So with that, I am Kim Ugra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast.